Welcome to the Boneyard, a podcast about Mythgard. This is episode six, Return of the Red Guy. Because I'm, I don't know if I'm the only one, Mark. You could probably chime in on this. Are you seeing a lot more mono red lately? <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of mono red. Well, then I'm glad that this title worked out because it was really hard to rhyme Jedi. Anyways, my name is Flake. I will be your host, and of course, like you said, or like we 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 already heard from, rather, this is my co-host, Mark Theus. Yes, sir. We are happy to bring you another episode of The Boneyard, and we want to start the show by thanking our sponsors, Team Rankstar, Inked Gaming, 98.3 Media, OPC, and all you wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for making all of this possible. Yeah, so there's a patch looming, folks, and also uh, Rhino's developers dropped some fun statistics uh, regarding the game up until this point from open beta. So we're going to get into that. You know, on this episode, we'll discuss some of the numbers associated with path selection, win rates, card creation, uh, you know, length of game. And uh, also there was a tournament that took place. We'll get into a little bit of the nitty gritty about what was played in that tournament. And we're also going to hook you up and tell you how you can win a free starter pack just by listening to this podcast. That's right. And joining us to help us crunch the numbers is the Procaster himself, Charmer. He has heaps of experience in CCGs, having cast in multiple tournaments in the Elder Scrolls Legends, Magic Arena and Artifact. Oh, boy. Remember that one? He also has fantastic hair. Well, if he has fantastic hair, you know what they say. There are always two, a master and an apprentice. Play the music. Let's enter the Boneyard. All right, this is episode six of the Boneyard. It's always great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to the show. We're going to start off again. I know you've heard this many times. There's uh, with the quote unquote state of Mythgard. Now there's there's no real meta to report or to share just yet. You know, the uh, the top minds over at MythgardHub.com are soon going to be churning out a weekly meta report. And we'll be diving into those meta reports to kick off each episode still. I think it's fair to say that there's still a lot of fluctuations in the game. So it's not really going to do you any justice if we kind of dive into something that's still in such constant flux. However, the uh, development team let us in on a little bit of uh, some juicy bits informing us that a patch will hit Mythgard early this week. Now, we are recording this episode on Monday October 7th. So we really have no clue what that involves or if it even has hit yet. So uh, we might be behind on the times. It's just a matter of, you know, being in the past and projecting to the future. It is, it's just the way it is. We are not exactly, we don't own any DeLoreans to, you know, jump back and forth through time. So we have no idea what happens. But what I do have for you is a wonderful guest by the name of Charmer. Charmer is a, uh, he's a pro caster. He's got many tournaments under his belt. He's lent his talents to games like Elder Scrolls Legends, Magic, Artifact. Uh, he's called countless big moments and uh, is as cool as a cucumber with his delivery, frankly. And apparently, I guess he also has great hair. How are you, Charmer? I'm doing great after that amazing intro. You made me sound far more interesting than I actually am, so I appreciate that. Humble, too, which is something to say. I mean, you have a lot of credits to your name, my dude. Um, you know, TESL, Magic, Artifact, you've got plenty of experience going for you there. And I'm, I'm just wondering, this whole casting thing, my dude, where did this kick off for you? How did you jump into this world? Because, I mean, a lot of people want to get into it. Uh, and not everyone necessarily has the opportunity, let alone the skill set, to jump into not only one game, but multiple games and succeed 
on that level. I actually found casting by accident, as weird as that sounds. I started making content both on YouTube and Twitch for uh, a number of different games, but nothing had really found any success for me until I decided to go back to my roots, which was card games. I've played card games for the majority of my life, uh, far longer than I want to admit to because I'm an old man. And when I started making content for the Elder Scrolls Legends, I got lucky. I made some friends with Bethesda. I started a podcast and we had Pete Hines on the show and it was going well. I, I got contacted about visiting the Bethesda headquarters to give them some feedback. And I, of course, said yes. So I went to Bethesda HQ. I did that. And then somewhere along the way, somebody said, hey, we are going to be doing this tournament series. It's called the Master Series. Would you be interested in casting? And I had done none prior. So I was a bit nervous, but I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity. And I ended up loving it. Like I loved every moment of it. Uh, it, it was a, a bit of a, it was a bit of a point of turmoil for me because at the time I was still working three jobs, like a full-time job. I was teaching at night and I was doing some contract work and every weekend for like six weeks, I would fly out to LA, do a show from a studio. And then I would literally fly back. And because of the time zone changes, I would land and drive straight to work on Monday with no sleep. And despite all of that, uh, I also moved. I bought a house during that period. Uh, despite all that, I still loved it. And so when I got done, I was like, hey, that that was something that I want to devote time to. So even though it wasn't something I was actively seeking at the start, uh, I'm thoroughly in love. And any opportunity that's coming my way, I'm taking from this point on. I find it interesting sometimes how these things just like these opportunities or these these different career paths just pop out of nowhere that kind of take you by surprise and you instantly fall in love with them. And it, it might be something that you never thought would grasp you the way that they do. Um, I never thought I would be A, uh, good at casting or B, enjoy casting. I thought from the get-go that I would always be more of someone who likes to interact with people and casting. You do interact with people, obviously, but that's not the the the, the main goal of the job. And for me, finding, you know, getting the opportunity and then it just took one, you know, one swoop at it and it, it had me, you know, and I, I, now that's kind of what I want to do every single day of my life. And you have three or you had rather three jobs and you know, what, what point, when was that epiphany for you where it just dropped on you and you're like, yep, this is it. This is what I'm going to be digging in for. I would say it was probably when I got the opportunity for casting artifacts, specifically the first We Play tournament. I had done some Legends stuff. Obviously, I did the Master Series and I, and I enjoyed it. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll do that uh, on the side, like as a hobby. And then I was contacted by the folks at We Play to go all the way to Kiev and start casting some artifact events. And uh, about halfway through that one, I, I had realized that this was not something that I was, one, willing to give up. Um, but also, it was the sort of thing that I wasn't going to be able to do it and keep doing as many of the jobs I was doing, specifically teaching. Um, teaching, I'm the kind of person who I just feel like I'm doing my students a disservice if I'm not the one who's there, if I, they have to have a sub all the time. And with the travel that was going to be involved to casting, I was going to put them in a bind. 
So I have since stopped teaching. I'm no longer doing contract work. I, I do still keep the day job because casting does not really come with a whole lot of health care here in the United States. And as somebody with a family, I have a wife and two kids, like that part's important. But outside of that, uh, I keep my schedule very open. I keep my vacation stored up so that basically all my vacation days just go to casting now. And I, I, I travel and I do remote events and any, anything that's coming my way, I'm picking up because I really do enjoy it. It's very similar to teaching in that I am in many ways still kind of educating an audience. It's just I'm replacing the lecture and, you know, the whiteboard and the podium with the booth and the headset. But the experience is very similar to me. Mark, you've done casting too. Uh, you know, you, I, I've casted a tournament with you actually, yeah. which was very cool. I think it was your first one, was it? Or have you done prior to that? Uh, what what did we do? Which one did we do? We yeah, did a Gwent, Gwent tournament. I, I forgot which one it was, but I remember we did a, a Gwent tournament back in the day. And, yeah. And, and what was funny about that tournament was that, I mean, it was low stakes. It was just a fun tournament, just something a community threw together. But Mark and I could not stop making bad jokes back and forth to each other, like kind of... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the best part about it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like, but uh, how did that grip you necessarily? Because like, for me, getting that first taste of casting for Charmer, same thing. You know, I it's like this is what I want to do. Like for you, you do spectacular work as a like in a, in the production realm of of content creation, etc. Like I, you're best in the biz, and and I would put your work you know next to anyone else's and and say like this is top notch and oh, i'm not just saying that because well i'm times. not just saying that because yeah exactly because you, you can mute me at any time during this uh, broadcast right now if you want to but yeah. uh that that said you know like where where do you find your passions with this because i think everybody has their own unique path but for you mark what like what is your driving force when it comes to content creation yeah see i always find everyone's story interesting when they when they talk about how they got into casting because mine's a little backwards because you know, like you, you guys got started where you fell into kind of a casting situation. You fell in love with it and you just, you know, you want to do it uh, from that point on. Uh, I kind of came from the back end of it where I came from producing events to then being in front of the camera a little bit and then going, oh, I want to do that more. Um, but I still actually love producing an event more than I like casting or hosting or anything like that. And I know I've done events with Uflag. I've done a couple of Gwent events here and there. Um, I but mostly, I think I'm more of a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. I, I enjoy that part more than being in front of the camera. I, I think I'm okay with it, but I, I think like you guys are much better at doing that than I am. So what is the best CCG that you that you think is is from a casting perspective, Charmer? I mean, you've done you've had your 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 kicks at various different CCG cans, so to speak. But what to you is the most enjoyable as a caster to to be calling play by play you know it's really interesting because my answer is going to vary depending on the point of view you want to take for me personally as a caster uh, artifact was one of the most fun games for me to call because it's very deep and it's very complex and there's a lot of lines you can talk about and even though most folks like to malign rng uh, the reality is that variance in card games is the whole reason that a lot of us play it, because every game plays different, but still has a sense of familiarity. Artifact, with its uh, kind of variance, it was always a lot of variance, but it was low-impact variance, and so uh, every game was different, and there were different scenarios that would pop up, so it was always fresh and new, 
and it, it was complex. So uh, I, I'm an analytical kind of guy. I enjoy that for me personally, but I also understand that that game didn't translate well to a viewer experience because most of the time, two thirds of your game information is hidden. Uh, the three boards is great for complexity, but bad for viewership. And it's even worse if there's not some sort of extension that people can interact with. So from a viewership standpoint, uh, and I, I might catch some hate for this as well, I don't think there's a card game that is more fun to watch than Hearthstone because yeah. you get all of that variance, but you also get like just big flashy moments or you get weird games that are won from cards that don't even belong in either player's deck. You know, if you get these long control warrior mirrors, if, if you can stay awake for the full hour and you get to the end, uh, it, everything is is kind of chaos, but that that's fun for the viewer, right? You get these big flashy plays. You you know, uh, again, you might hate Yog Saren, but it makes for for compelling viewership. So uh, I, I think that other card games are kind of struggling with that because they know that many card game players don't want that level of variance in their experience. They want skill to be rewarded, but that's also what is a lot of the fun from a viewership standpoint. And finding that balance can be difficult. Yeah. It's a good point that you made. Like, and the fact that you mentioned Yog Saron is to me the epitome of what competitive Gwent, uh, sorry, comp uh, competitive Hearthstone rather, wanted to be, but also wanted to avoid. Because a lot of the the advertising that came with that package when Old Gods was released was they're saying, yeah, it's super hyper RNG, but it'll never be competitive. So we're kind of getting the best of both worlds here. So you'll still have those elements of competitive uh, competitive Hearthstone, rather, but you're going to not have to worry about these hyper RNG cards really changing things. And and the reason why Gwent slipped out of my mind, too, is because they released a card similar to that, you know, Shoop, wherein uh, you have this hyper powerful, uh -huh. ultra random card that they would advertise, you know, when they're they're trying to sell the package was very RNG related very powerful, not competitive, don't worry about it. When in reality, that's not the case. And I know I, I like the line you're taking there about the fact that Hearthstone is the best to catch, uh, to, to maybe cast as well, but also, you know, absorb because of these huge moments. And I, I, Mark and I commiserate all the time about these humongous moments we have with Hearthstone, where it's like, it's these absolutely bogus, crazy, oh, yeah. big time, silly nonsense plays, right? <laughs> That's what makes yeah, it the most no, fun. Absolutely. But it, that's what you it, want to see. Yeah, it's it's that's what gets you excited as a caster, right? It's one thing for you to, again, dive into the analysis. And don't get me wrong, like I personally love that. I get a lot of enjoyment from that. But there's also just something about, you know, those wild top deck moments or, you know, the crazy RNG moments. And the Elder Scrolls Legends, for example, during the very first Master Series, we had our own kind of RNG devil pop up. There was a card that I actually had the joy of releasing when the set came out. It's called Mudcrab Merchant. And most folks thought that it was just not good enough to see play. And then instead it ended up dominating most of the aggro lists. Uh, it was a one drop and it would reveal two cards at random from like the entirety of the game. And you would pick one and it goes to your hand. And then the one you didn't pick goes to your opponent's hand. So not only was it randomness, but it was providing randomness to both players every time it got played. And it, it really shifted things, but those are also exciting moments, right? Like during that same tournament, we had people, you know, sending us stuff on Twitter of mud crabs eating pasta and crabs holding knives and whatever, because it created fun moments. So uh, 
casting is is weird because on the one hand, you definitely want to reward skill, but sometimes the most exciting moments where you can like really break out your hype voice and and do these things with the community come from you know random acts of variance and you're trying to wrap your head around the two of them is is sometimes really difficult. So is Mythgard lacking that now? Uh, you know, we want to talk about the viability of Mythgard. Uh, we discussed it as from an esports perspective, and I think from a from the perspective of being a competitor in Mythgard, I think a lot of the tools and fundamentals of the game are very sound to really nurture. Uh, a competitive scene players are not necessarily going to be overly um you know they're not going to get shook by bad rng moments because in in reality there's very very few you know you can count them on one car uh, on one hand uh, cards that ha offer rng related elements i mean i can't tell you the amount of times i've gotten screwed by a splicing lab but beyond that you won't have that kind of um interaction of rng really shaking the the way a, a game will unfold so i mean mark you've seen a, a bajillion games of hearthstone where yog saron has gone off and been absolutely oh, yeah. ape gone ape yeah. however without those kinds of cards will there be an appeal for Mythgard from a viewer's perspective in in competition what is the uh, you know what's the appeal besides seeing high level like there's going to be no holy crap moments or sure or are we just not seeing it sure there is you got plenty of cards like that, like Cataclysm, and like there's a lot of like big board clears and board wipes and uh, things like that. I mean, not not as much randomness, but you still have a lot of uh, big play interactions, uh, big mythic cards that drop, you know, things like that. But the big out of nowhere kind of plays, and you know what Charmer said again. I, I keep going back to Yogg-Saron because he was the X factor for a lot of decks where you'd play that kind of casino mage of just spamming as many cheap spells as possible to the point where you have that oh crap button of well I have no idea how to get out of this pickle, so I'm going to drop Yogg-Saron, and if I still have a life total, like if I can still pass turn at the end of it, I know I survive, and yeah. we'll deal with it then. So I don't think there is without, a card like that in Mythgard. I don't think there is anything close to that, actually. But without that element, without that wow factor, without those fireworks, would people still want to tune in to competitive Mythgard? I, I think the answer is yes. And the reason I'm going to say that is because Magic Arena has a pretty good audience. And that game is... Also missing, in many cases, that kind of randomness, that X factor. There, there's a couple of cards here and there, but for the most part, the core competitive gameplay uh, in that, your big wow moments are going to be top decks, right? And that is still present in Mythgard. One of the things that played Artifact was that you never really had top deck like wow moments in that game because when you played Artifact, it was across three boards, and sometimes the most important action was happening on board three, so at the start of each round, you would draw your cards and then everybody would wait, right? There is no like, oh my God, he top decked the exact out moment, right? In the Elder Scrolls Legends during the first Master Series, we have a very famous moment that was called the 5K Anasi because somebody literally, uh, they top decked a one of in their deck. And by doing that, they, they won the game that put them into the finals and it was worth $5,000. Like that one top deck basically got the guy $5,000. So top decks with the immediate payoff, I think can still bring in those moments. And there are not necessarily Yogg-Saron cards, but there are some 
competitive cards with an element of randomness. My personal bane uh, in Mythgard, for example, is Godspore. <laughs> that that silly fungus has cost me more games than I would like to admit because somebody gets just you know the right keyword at the right time, something like that. So while it's not heavy-handed in Mythgard, it does exist, and there's always room to grow if they feel like they need more of that to grow a viewership, but I don't think it's required. I think the immediacy of top-decking the right powerful card and then playing it can sometimes be enough because we see that in Magic. I think a lot of the big wow moments are going to come from high-level plays of weird or um, unorthodox lines of play in order to secure victory or to take advantage. And that's where a lot of the appeal, I think, of the game is going to come from, where you're not roll you know high rolling a random card to generate a random card that gets you out of a moment now as spectacular and awesome as that is i find that that is exciting in one way but equally as exciting is when you can't see an out for your for the player you're watching and they manage to sort of weasel their way out to take back the board or to survive an extra turn that looked like it was completely grim and out of control. And those top decks that you're talking about are, are, are always going to be there with every single game. The top deck element of holy crap, he did it, he pulled it off, or that was lucky, or that was crazy. That's always going to be there. And I experienced it today where my opponent missed lethal. And I said, well, I'm screwed unless I draw Wonder Drug. And the first card off the top was Wonder Drug. And then I ended up winning the game because I had a better cushion and I could you know, my misanthropia clicked another turn and it was all good. So I think there's there's going to be room for those big moments. I think they're just going to come with a different type of spice, a different flavor. Um, I mean, there's nothing like playing, um, you know, a, 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 a spell book into a, a flame strike and clearing the board and taking the game in Hearthstone. But, uh, you know, I think that it's actually better that, Har- that Mythgard is going to be very weak from an rng element with all that sort of put aside i mean we've got uh, a, a bubbling and, and a developing esports uh you know idea or or project that's in the back of the minds or maybe even the forefront of the rhino developers we have no news on that but we do have a tournament that just wrapped up and I guess, you know, despite the fact that there's no meta report that we can tap into, we do have the Mythgard tournament uh, final deck results that we can share in terms of actually kind of putting our pulse on what is going on and what the popular decks are. This is a standard con- uh, constructed event. So people built decks based on everything that they owned. And the top eight was, how did you put it, Charmer? You, you, you had a, a nice <laughs> moniker for this. Yeah, I affectionately called it the Orange Bowl because Orange was very heavily represented. I don't know if we can actually say that on the podcast without giving rights to the NCAA, but <laughs> if you want if you want to beep that out or something, that's fine. But that's the way I was referring to it because it was very orange. Yeah, it was predominantly orange. And just looking at the statistics of cards and what came out the most, it's obvious. I mean, most most played mythics was Armageddon Angel. Uh, so this is out of the top eight. The top eight decks, the most played mythic was Armageddon Angel at seven. So you could probably bet dollars to donuts that there was obviously seven orange decks out of the eight. Uh, and, and from that point, Scion of Pride, five. Uh, and then it was just downward from there. Um, you know, most played commons, 21 eager recruits. Uh, most played cards, obviously 21 eager recruits. They were all over the place. Um, which, how does this translate to 
ladder play mark on ladder are you bumping into a lot of orange decks you know like the 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 tournament scene versus the ladder scene is obviously different but this is just predominantly orange or is yeah. it overtuned uh I've, I've seen a lot of orange for sure i think in orange red combinations as well there's been uh a surge in my opinion of orange decks all of a sudden and i think that's because uh orange has a lot going for especially when you combine it with red you that's a very uh aggro deck um, so it's it's actually a lot of low cost cards that you could swarm the board with. And it kind of is a nice answer to all these big creatures or big units being played or whatever. Why are we calling them creatures or units? I don't even know. Uh, all these big uh, units being played and, and things like that. So definitely a lot more orange and red I've seen. And it's interesting to hear that it's in tournaments as well. That makes sense, I suppose. And it's it's mostly I mean, there's aggro elements to it. There's control elements to it. It yeah, just seems the desert, that the desert effects are really. I mean, when you when you want to play an enchantment deck, I mean, you got de- deserts are a great enchantment to to get rolling. So, uh, I watched several streamers today play orange. I mean, it just I think orange is just becoming more uh, more common. Is it the most well rounded color you find? No, no, I I think orange is missing things like uh, I <laughs> orange is missing a lot other of a lot of other enchantments that do certain things. Like the orange is good for if you play mono orange. I think you're going to be a little aggressive with swarming, but I think there's some other things that are kind of missing there. One of my most hated cards is, by the way, Armageddon Angel, which is I hate that card beyond belief because <laughs> it just destroys the entire board. And then you just got this gigantic unit just sitting there. <laughs> I just hate yeah, that card. Sapo food is what oh, I call it. I as, hate it. As a, as a yellow main, a sapo food is essentially yeah. what Armageddon Angel is because she just clears the board and then you go ahead and it's just tasty treats for uh, big old sapo. <laughs> I know. But, but if you want to argue about well-rounded, though, you you know, last week we talked about with Woody about mono green being well-rounded. It's like I think every faction color has well-roundedness. So to in order to say, well, this faction's more well-rounded than the other, it's like, well, I can find elements of every sing- everything in every single color. So I don't, I don't really know, you know, how to answer uh, that. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's 100% true. There are certainly some colors that have an identity in areas that, that others don't. For example, some colors definitely ramp uh, as far as like getting your maximum mana higher much better than others. Uh, orange, if you were to ask me like what orange's weak point is, uh, I would say that the standout there is they don't have a great way to gain health naturally. So you have yeah. to pair them with another color to do that. So I, I do think that colors have weaknesses. I think that one of the reasons that orange is as popular as it is is because uh, Mythgard... When you're first learning Mythgard, you think about it in terms of uh, other card games you've played. For a lot of people, that's going to be something like Hearthstone or the Elder Scrolls Legends. And when you come to Mythgard, you see that the attacker still chooses the targets. So in your head, you say, okay, it's it's the same, but it's not. The, the Rhino dev team did a great job of still allowing the defender to play defense and, uh, to borrow a term from Magic, chump block. That idea of... You can put a small minion, uh, minion's the proper term, thank you. Uh, you can put a small <laughs> minion in front of uh, other people's bodies, essentially, and just use them to absorb damage and buy you time. And Orange does that incredibly well. So many of their minions just make more minions. And even though they're small minions, they might be a 2-1, a 1-1. Those can, in the late game, be the same as gaining 5, 6, 7 health if you're blocking big bodies. So while orange gets a reputation for kind of being this swarm color, 
that's the way that Orange technically gains health and plays defense is you can just use their endless string of bodies to run your uh, opponent out of resources with basically fodder until you find your own powerful plays. You can buy time to get those Armageddon Angels. And so it, it can play offense and defense very well. It's a very solid mid-range color in my mind as a result. And that it, it, that's great. That's good for tournament play. You want to be able to do both. You want to be able to pivot. That's why the Serpent Den is so damn good, people. I never, and everyone keeps telling me that it's like, yeah, it's a good card. And uh, I think you're a little obsessed with the Serpent Den there, Flake. You might as well just kind of like maybe pump your brakes on that one a little bit there, buddy. Maybe take 10% off of your enthusiasm for that card. But exactly to Charmer's point, first of all, sidebar, um, minion, unit, creature. Uh, I played in a Shadowverse tournament this past weekend where they're called Followers. These games just get together and freaking figure yeah, it pick out. Pick one name, please. <laughs> figure it out, guys. Okay. Either way, dudes. At the end of the day, by the way, they're all called dudes. That's dudes. just what about just the ones that are females? They're every a female they're can also be a dudes. dude. They're all dudes. Everyone's a dude. Okay. <laughs> We're all dudes. dudes you listening, dudettes. you're a dude. The guy or girl in the car next to you, yeah, that's a dude too. Anyways. <laughs> uh but that's that's a good point. Is the fact that there are cards that have i mean the, the whole chump block uh the chump block strategy of um you know it i don't care how big your creature is because it's still just gonna get it's it's not doing damage to me so throwing down those eager recruits it's it's a great it's, it's as good as gaining the life that you otherwise would lose so you're really just buying time until you can establish strategy and i think that's why a lot of uh, decks are going to play um uh, orange is because of the eager recruit train and just constantly filling your hand with these little you know numbskulls that you can just throw down to to step in the face of these giants and just buy you time while you establish other strategies and other means of dealing with threats um and i think it's worth looking into now we did get some statistics and and uh from the developers at rhino they released uh, win percentages, crafted cards, and whatever. And we're going to get to the win percentages of different paths later. I want to touch upon, uh, first and foremost, the most crafted cards. And um, I, I, you guys saw the list, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So I'm not going to sort of, I was going to give you a little quiz and see maybe you can guess them. But out there, if <laughs> you guys are listening, maybe you guys can take a guess. But we're going to go through the five most crafted cards. And I guess discuss a little bit about why these are the ones to take. But first up, we have Maze of Yatiku. Then it's uh, Einardar, Thane, Miso Libre, Brainstorm, and Serpent Den. And if we're looking at exactly what the hell these cards are, they're yellow and blue. And these are cards that, uh, for the, the obvious reasons, but why are we not seeing things like Panic Raider or, um, you know, uh, or other type or, or you know, cards from other uh other color schemes why is it only yellow and blue cards that are getting most of this attention that's your control man yellow and blue is your control combo it's that you're you're spot and, on and card draw and card draw as well like with but brainstorm like at, and maze that's card draw yeah well you have brainstorm brainstorm obviously from the blue perspective card draw imperative to just being able to have answers you have more cards you have more options you have more answers you have more ways to win the game maze of yatiku one drop yellow go ahead if it's unmatched if you can defend it you're drawing two three four possible cards over the span of your game off of it fantastic anar thane a great great early game drop that can continuously trade for value 
Miso Libre, in my opinion, the best yellow common in the game. Um, I mean, let's be honest here. You drop it down, it has a significant body. It can just buy you time while you set up and move cards around to deal with a threat in Serpent Den. I mean, I don't need to be the one selling this card all the time. I know a lot of people are a fan of this card. It is a one. It just produces dude after dude after dude after dude every single turn. And as Charmer said, chump blocking is important. But um, Charmer, I mean, what based on this is, it, you know, everybody's crafting these cards that lean towards a control meta. So how how is it then that we are constantly trying to tell people that aggro is the best way to go from a budget when in reality these are the cards people most want right off the bat apparently because everybody's crafting these well uh, i'm gonna throw a different spin on this and say i look at this list and outside of serpent den i see a bunch of aggro cards anyway because if you want to play an, an aggressive yellow list miso libre is still a part of it Believe it or not, there was a time when that card was only one yellow gem during the alpha. Miso Libre has been one of my favorite cards in the game for a very long time because it is insanely powerful in what it does. Uh, I think that guy is luchadorable. But <laughs> oh my God. Oh boy. if you're playing if you're playing an aggressive <laughs> yellow deck, you still want to run maze. I know that sounds really weird, but yellow in and of itself doesn't have a lot of like amazing one drops. You have the two two with I think piercing, but for the most part. If you're not doing anything on turn one, developing a maze and drawing a card is just as good as cycling. And on top of that, with maze, you can later use it to protect your threats. Uh, again, if you're kind of playing like a tempo-oriented deck, if you have something that is a high priority, the maze does have defender. You can plop that down next to it, and then they have to attack into the maze. It kind of shields your guy for a turn. So M maze is still entirely viable in an aggressive deck, and it's a solid budget card. And Miso Libre is certainly viable in any sort of aggressive or mid-range yellow. Thane and Brainstorm are staples of the Valkyrie package. So I'm not really surprised to see them there either. Uh, Serpent Den, I think, is just fun. Uh, you don't have to sell me on it either. I'm a big fan of the Danger Noodles. I, <laughs> I think that other players, if they are going to want to play Control, that's a great budget way to get into it. If, if you don't have all the big mythics just spamming bodies to chump block is a good way to go but i i think it's a little bit of this also being a byproduct of the featured decks so this game unlike other games does give players the opportunity to play two kind of pre-made decks that are on rotation and if players find a deck in there that they really like they might start crafting cards to emulate that and so that also might be a big explanation for this particular list because maybe uh, Maze is just in a lot of the feature decks that players are finding fun. And so they are like, okay, well, I had fun with this feature deck. I want to copy it and start trying to build it. And that's just part of the list. A lot of the mistakes I find that new players overlook is the importance of card draw. So having a card, I, I, I'm surprised that a card like Brainstorm is something that card players are, are diving into then again i mean being in joining an alpha or a beta of a, of a card game as a new player is two card games in general is i find fairly rare usually if you're diving into a card game you're going to go into something well established that everybody already plays so uh maybe that could sort of explain why uh brainstorm isn't one of the most crafted cards mainly because people who are joining the game understand already the importance of uh cheap access to your deck so three you know you play three mana you draw two cards it seems good and 
And I guess I can see where you're coming from, from the fact that, you know, yellow, if you're playing an aggressive yellow deck, it just it seems to me like yellow in, in general doesn't necessarily lend itself to being an aggressive deck um, from its entire catalog of cards. Uh, so I, I think we can, we can sort of talk now about the length of, of the games. This is another element that Rhino uh, released the, the statistics of what a 1v1 game average time is. And, you know, they have the mean, the median, and the mode. And I think the mean is just the only thing that really we want to look at. So 9 minutes, 23 seconds is the average game length of a one-on-one game. Is that too long? Is that too short? How do you feel about that? Uh, me personally, I think that's fine. 10 minutes or less, I think, is kind of that good target for something. If if you're trying to cater to a mobile experience, you want somebody to maybe be able to complete it on you know, a train ride, a, an Uber ride, something like that. So I think I think 10 minutes is a good average. And I know that you said you only wanted to look at the mean, but uh, if you're a math person and you understand the difference between mean and median, uh, the median being eight minutes and the mean being almost nine and a half tells me that there is there is something a little amiss here because yeah that's me got a lot of you've got a lot of short games and then the things that drag your average are the long games tend to go really long that's me playing stretcher that's that's right one completely polluting this data so it it is worth noting that uh yeah your average might be nine and a half but your experience might be like you know a six minute game an eight minute game uh an eight minute game a six minute game and then a 40 minute game against flake so just (laughs) kind of keep that in mind because that's the way averages work right like in theory your average human being in the united states has less than 10 fingers and less than 10 toes because the way averages work if people have nine, they're going to bring it down and there's far less people with 11. So your average is going to be below 10, right? That's how averages work. So uh, average can be misleading. I, I'm letting my uh, my day job bleed through. I'm a, I do data analytics during the day. So I'm, I'm letting this bleed through. But this, this nine and a half minutes is where you want to be. But the other numbers here tell me that some of the long games are going to be going very long. I've taken, I took a game today to fatigue actually, uh, which made me feel great. It was actually that, it was that, I think it was that same game where I top decked that wonder drug and stuck into it. Um, but yeah, basically statistics being that the mean, so the average length of game is nine minutes, 23 seconds. The median being out of all the data collected, the middle, middle of the pack is eight minutes and the mode being the most common uh, data piece is six minutes. So in reality, there's a ton of six-minute games, but the me- the fact that the mean is above the the median and 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 such is just that, like you said, there are some games that are probably lasting 13, 14 minutes or more. And is that you know is that a good recipe that like that you want? Do you want these super short games, Mark? Do you want these games to be? decided before turn seven how do you want this to sort of play out for maximum appeal well i just did a quick google search and you could microwave four and a half hot pockets in the amount of time that it takes you to play one Mythgard game so that's a fun little fact for you uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i actually i'm okay with the length because uh some games do feel longer than others um but i i think that that's all right i mean i think the longest you know if i'm going to compare it to my other experiences i think the longest game for me has been in magic. And then I would say the shortest has probably been Hearthstone. 
So oh, this is yeah. like somewhere right in the middle, for in, in my opinion, just from what I've experienced. But again, depending on what you play, like you said, Stretcher, if I'm playing Fires of Creation deck, it's probably going to take me a little longer. If I'm playing uh, an aggressive deck or a mono red, or if I'm playing a mid-range, maybe I'm doing like Valkyrie's deck, maybe it'll take me, you know, uh, six minutes. Um, it, it just depends on, I guess, what you're playing, who you're playing against, all of that. But I think nine and a half minutes is perfectly fine. I think what Charmer says is correct. You know, that's, that's the amount of time that I'm sitting on a train or in an Uber or whatever. You know, um, I get one game in, I can move on. Um, the worst is if you like you're that that uncertainty of if I'm sitting on a train and do I have time to play one more or not? You know, if you know that I have enough time to play at least one game of Mythgard, like that's the perfect way to kind of look at it, I guess. Yeah, that privilege went out the door when Hearthstone had these gigantic uh, control warrior mirrors where, well. you know, you could be going from. Toronto to Montreal on a train and you don't know if you're going to be able to play more than one, you know, yeah. if you could be able to get one of those, <laughs> those games in, cause it's ridiculous how that happened. Yeah. But um, even fatigue in Hearthstone, because it's, it's also the, the deckhand is less, right? So fatigue in Hearthstone takes less time than if you were to try to do fatigue in Matt and Mythgard. Fatigue in Mythgard also is incredibly difficult because you're cycling cards. So you're constantly adding stuff back into the library. But uh, but like a fatigue match, even in Hearthstone, is shorter, I think, than nine and a half minutes. I think you can get through a fatigue in about probably seven, you know, if you if you move a little quick, if everyone's hitting end turn quick enough. In Hearthstone, you mean? Yeah. I think oh, you can probably uh, get through fatigue uh, se- in seven minutes. Yeah, seven, seven might be a lot, but like I uh, or might be underselling it a little bit. That might be super quick. But there were those days when you had the Cold Light Oracle drawing two cards on both sides, and Rogue can probably completely smoke you with that, with the bounce effects and replaying it and replaying it and replaying it. Yeah. There were some really nifty decks back in the day with that and milling your opponent real quick where um, uh, probably if, if the game was lasted, you know, if, if the game was under eight minutes, it's probably because, you know, there was a you're hitting fatigue and your opponent just concedes. But um, I mean, if you can get your opponent to concede, then I guess you've you've effectively uh, achieved your goal either way. Yeah. Um, Wait, here's an important question, too, because we didn't ask this. So we're analyzing the amount of time it takes to play a Mythgard game. But the real question is, were you having fun in those nine and a half minutes? Right. Or are you sitting there getting annoyed? Because that, that's, I think, is a big factor as well. I could have a lot of fun in that nine and a half minutes, whether I won or not. But if I was annoyed during those nine and a half minutes, I would feel like every nine and a half minutes is horrible and a torture. And, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, so, that, so that's also plays a big part in it as well. I think some people will look at that time and think that and think, oh, nine and a half minutes is too long. I'm never going to play a game that takes that long for one match. Like, But if you're having fun doing that, then why would you be, what would it matter, you know? I think if you're sticking into the game at that point, even if it's unfun, there's there's uh, at least an opportunity for you to potentially swing the game into your favor. If if victory is still within reach, you'll you'll you know you'll buck up and just go with it, and and essentially you'll take your shots and and live through the agony of whatever kind of horrible horrible experience that your opponent's tossing at you yeah i just know that when i'm into a 15 or 20 minute game i'm having a great time because it usually means that my stretcher is just whipping the crap 20 out of your minute opponent game. 20 minutes uh, <laughs> i've had a 20 minute game and oh it my was god it was exceptional it was so damn satisfying because i was in the driver's seat the whole time and basically in those in those matches of it was control versus control where nobody wanted to essentially commit much to the board. So it was, it was like chess. It was just moving pieces, 
blocking up your opponent's um you know access to to your face more or less and snakes would come out and you move stuff around and it was great in that regard but uh i i mean that's just me personally i know a lot of people are not going to enjoy these long-winded games are you more control oriented charmer or are you more of an aggro type player like what to you is the ideal situation uh in terms of of, of play experience you know it's interesting like at my heart I, I love to play combo. Like there's nothing to me more satisfying than the exponential spike in power of it looks like I was doing nothing for, you know, seven turns and then I just accidentally win. But in terms of like play experience, more often than not, I, I find that combo decks just aren't viable across many CCGs for various reasons. So in my younger years, I was a very much a like control player. I wanted to ruin the experience of my opponent as much as possible. You know, I was that guy that ran every removal spell in Magic. I was that guy that played land destruction in Magic. I, I used to get my jollies off with like birds into Stone Rain and to plow under and watch them concede. But as I get older, right, I I just find that I don't have even the patience to play control. I, I guess I've realized now that now that I'm older, um, I just like winning, and the faster I can win, the more fun I'm going to have, I guess. So I play a lot of aggro now. I play a lot of aggro in Legends. I, I tend to play more aggressive decks in Mythgard. I really like things with Rush. Um, I love the Ninja package in Purple because they're very like tempo-oriented. They're not true aggro, but you you control the board through bodies and uh, lane manipulation. And those are the things that I enjoy now as I'm older. I, I, I see the art in efficiency. A lot of people like to say that like, Aggro is brainless because you're just trying to win as fast as possible. But to me, there's an artistry in trying to figure out the most efficient way to end the game. Because after all, like the game begins on turn one. So it might be fun for some folks to like pass until turn five and then let the game begin. But the game begins on turn one and you better bring your A game from like the beginning or else I'm going to be pushing it. You and Mark must just love each other, don't you? I love everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, look, love, a fellow aggro man, I, I can appreciate that. You guys are filthy. I like how you <laughs> called it artist. You can't crap on the floor and call it art, okay? That's okay. all I'm saying. You I can't judge what well, you can't judge what is art. Hey, it's you were talking about game length. Uh real real quick, I, I just had this thought. I was like, man, I, I feel like I've been playing a lot of long games lately, despite normally playing aggro. So the the YouTube video that just came out for me today, again, as we record this on Monday is me playing Mono Orange, and I played only two games, and my, my YouTube video was 47 minutes long. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, the, despite despite saying that Flakes makes fun of, fun of me for aggro, Mono Yellow is actually my favorite. And I know that Mono Yellow is, is pretty... I guess you can go aggro with it if you want, but like what you just said is Mono Yellow is a very control kind of thing. So, yeah, it takes a long... Those, those matches are long, man. All right. The next piece, the next spicy nugget, and I, I saved this for last because I think it has the most poignancy in terms of what potential assumptions we can make about the patch coming. So it is the win percentages associated to the different paths. The paths being, of course, Disc of Circadia, Fires of Creation, Journey of Souls, Rainbows, and Turn of Seasons. Now, the devs released the win rates, uh, the, the, the total win rates, plus the win rates when going first or going second for each of these. Now, there's only two that had uh, positive win rates. The other three had negative win rates. But the the glaring, uh, essentially the, the, the glowing beacon out of all of this is the fact that Turn of Seasons 
had a 54.5% overall win rate, but a 57.8% win rate when going first and a 51. So basically that broke down to 57.8 when going first and 51.5% when going second. A lot of questions I get when I'm streaming is, is turn of seasons really that great? Well, here it is cut and dry for you from a statistical standpoint that not only is it that great, it is the head and shoulders best season that are a path that you can get that you can use based on these statistical win loss ratios. Now, obviously it's not as, as cut and dry as I'm making it out to be because there's probably uh, that path is probably associated to a certain deck that's already strong, but a 57.8% win rate when going first. I've had this discussion uh, about certain magic decks uh, with Frosty. Frosty being a, a, a magic streamer, uh, him and I had a discussion about why he believed a certain called card, a card called Field of the Dead should be uh, banned. And he said because that particular card has a win rate approaching, you know, uh, over 55% and that is 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 ban worthy. Now I want to get your thoughts on this and do you think that this is something that they're going to address in the patch? And um charmer with you turn of the seasons this is sort of your star almost like your starter pack basic. Why are you what do you think that uh, there's such a, a significant win rate associated to this particular path? Uh, I think it's associated to this path for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is turn of seasons is a very popular pick for your standard control decks. And the people who are likely going to be piloting these like highly powerful control decks right now are more likely to be folks with a lot of experience in the alpha folks with large collections who can afford to pilot the expensive control decks. And as such, they're just going to naturally have a higher win rate. Another reason I think that this has a really high win rate is because we're very early in the life cycle of this game as far as like opening it up to the public. So we're not talking about the the diehard fans of Mythgard who've been playing since Alpha, but now we've got new players entering the fold more and more each day, uh, which is great because Mythgard is an awesome game, but new players have to learn the nuances of Mythgard. And as such, they don't know, I think, necessarily how to punish certain decks or certain paths and turn of seasons is one of those ones for example where you can really punish it if you know how to take advantage of uh winter right so if you're playing against a new player who may not understand what turn of seasons does they might thunderclap a turn too early instead of you know taking a little bit of damage but then getting the full board clear when the fragile pops up things like that so for me i think that Turn of Seasons is is popular amongst uh, many control decks that are going to be piloted by experienced players with large collections. And then you've got a, a series of folks who might not know how to punish it properly. And as such, it, it's going to have uh, a, a bit of a higher win rate than the others. Like all these other ones, when I look at it, they make an awful lot of sense to me, right? Like Fires of Creation across the board has a below 50% win rate. But in my mind, there's probably a bunch of people trying it out. They might not have full collections with all the artifacts that they need to really make that work, or they don't understand, um, you know, the the importance of when you make the the minions with fires of creation, et cetera, et cetera. So I would expect that to have a low win rate to start and then pick up as you know players get more experience. Um, Journey of Souls, I expect to have a low win rate, and it does simply because that's going to be played kind of in your de facto aggressive lists and 
New players will gravitate towards them because they're budget friendly, but experienced players know how to navigate against aggressive lists. So they're not as uh, successful overall or long term. Um, there's not the only thing that really jumped out at me uh, when I looked at these was Rainbow's End. Rainbow's End has uh, a 53.4% win rate when it's going first and a 40.4% win rate going second. That is a massive disparity. And it says that the pursuit on Rainbow's End might need to be adjusted. Yeah, the pursuit on Rainbow's End being that you get a discount on the first enchantment that you play. And I was looking at this, as this is the second point I was going to make, is the fact that um, every other... I mean, Turn of Seasons has a pretty big disparity between... It's a 6% disparity between going first and second. Uh, it seems obviously that going second is a, a significant disadvantage, and there might be some tweaks coming to the actual pursuit abilities of certain paths or maybe changing some of the paths themselves. But that is a that's a 13-point difference. Um, that is a big hole, Mark. That what like what is it that about Rainbow's End that going second just dumpsters you in this? Not to mention, first of all, Fires of Creation having a, a overall negative win rate. There's two reasons for that. Number one is what you said, is that it's a really difficult and very niche path to play and the other is because mark has spent the morning doing four color artifacts with fires <laughs> of creation and that yeah. might have that might have been part of bringing that percent yeah him and i have been creating some pretty wacky stuff with uh, yeah. fires of creation so that we are probably to blame for a good We've percentage been creating of some crap. fires <laughs> so rainbow zen mark turn two yeah. uh we're going um, second yeah i mean rainbow zen and journey of souls are actually two of my favorite uh, abilities to use uh, or two of my favorite paths i should say um, I think Rainbow's End on second, and I, th and I think the reason why it's so low is when, I mean, when you're playing Rainbow's End, you're typically playing a lot of enchantments. And if you have to play an enchantment, like, typically in turn one, you're going to have that enchantment early. You know, you're going to drop it somewhere you like it. But when you're going second, you're now playing from behind. So your enchantment needs to be played, and then it needs to be played on top of it. So... I think either a lot of people are still trying to play the enchantment first before the unit or they're playing a weak unit that gets killed before the enchantment goes down and so it can't get protected. That's the only thing I could think of. I, other than that, like I'm not really sure why it would be such a such a big deficit. What Actually, what's more fascinating to me is that the disc is 51.9% across the board, which means it's yeah. like the most consistent of any of them. But that Absolutely. one, I guess, is you know exactly what you're doing with that. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that most people are playing the disc with a uh, reincarnation deck which I, I don't really, I've tried the disc in other ways, and that's really the only, like a reanimator, I'm sorry, I said the wrong name, it's a reanimator deck, and I've tried you the disc, in, I've tried the disc in other things, and it doesn't quite feel as great, unless you're doing it with reanimator, because re, with reanimator, it just kind of makes sense. I love you know? disc in mono orange, that's actually Ooh, yeah, my really? video today. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to check that I think out. that a lot of people get hung up on the discard as being a negative, and it is, but it's only a negative if you don't have ways to mitigate that. Now, Reanimator mitigates it by turning it into a full-on positive. Mm -hmm. But in orange, when you have all these tiny bodies, being able to turn on the all creatures have slay one means that they trade up in value. Sure. And when you have all these things that make like ephemeral one ones in hand that you kind of don't care about late game, the discard portion is not a negative at all because you're just getting rid of a card that is a throwaway anyway but you get 
card quality choice, right? Anytime you go to the divination two and then draw a card, like I'm basically getting a sensei's divining top. If you're an old school magic player, uh, I'm getting a sensei's divining top for the, the course of the game, which means I'm going to find the cards I need the most. Uh, those Armageddon angels, things like that. And so I really like it in mono orange. I've been trying it a lot there. No reanimator tricks, just going for, um, you know, card quality choice and mitigating the drawback with getting rid of one ones. And it's pretty effective. Hmm. I'll have to try that out. Yeah, I, I haven't really found a comfortable way to play that uh, without doing uh, reanimator. So I'll have to I'll have to check that one out, see how that feels. And Disc of Circadia to me seemed like it was just intimately just married to the reanimator archetype. And uh, it's really cool, Charmer, to hear you trying it out with other things. And, and effectively, and to your point, it is right, because you have those eager recruits and other these small little one ones that sort of sit in your hand. And I don't say they take up space because you can always play them, but they're they're not as effective late game. Um, so being able to, like you said, trade up with Slayer 1 and just go ahead and ditch these these weenies out of your hand that are, are, are going to be ineffective down the road. Uh, very, very, you know, cool way to play that particular path. And, and again, the stats on this was 51.9% overall, 51.9 going first, 51.9 going second. So if you want consistency, Disc of Circadia somehow, somewhere in some alternate reality is the way to go. But well, uh, again, I think that's easy, though, because that's you're not changing your game plan depending on if you went first or second, right? And also, disc or, uh, the disc makes your uh, I don't can't remember. I think it's if you're going first, second, it makes your uh, your power zero. Is it going second that does that? I think. Yeah, going second yeah. to mitigate the uh, the negative, the drawback of going right. second, which yeah, is so it's like the perfect path. It's like it just that's why the it's so consistent because you, you just it's the same as if you went first or second. It doesn't matter. It's the same scenario no matter what. That said, just right. hope that if you if you're choosing Rainbow Zen, that you're great at coin uh, coin flips because it's essentially how you're going to decide that game. It's insane. Forty point four percent win rate going second. I guess playing playing all those uh, enchantments doesn't necessarily equate to much tempo. So you're probably playing from behind a lot of that game. Until yeah, that's you can slam that's down the only thing a, I could think of that. I mean, that's gotta be it, right? I mean, you're, you're playing so many enchantments and playing one second's got to suck, right? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's uh first, let me start by saying, I think it's absolutely brilliant that Rhino decided to balance the going second on each of the paths. Because when you look at games like the Elder Scrolls Legends with the Ring of Magicka, Hearthstone with the coin, magic with nothing, right? Like, yeah. I, I know it's the play and the draw, but let's be honest, nothing. Um, giving each of your paths the ability to, to tweak something if you do have an imbalance in win rates is just brilliant here. Because most of these, when I'm looking at them, their first and second win rates are within percentage points of each other. We have two outliers and one's a very extreme outlier. So the fact that they have this and they can literally just adjust that path and not have to adjust a core mechanic that's going to affect every deck and every archetype is wonderful. It was a beautiful design choice, and I uh, appreciate that they did that. But the big thing for me with Rainbow's End, and, and Mark touched on this, is that enchantments are, in many cases, with the exception of ones that also create a body, uh, in many cases they are uh, negative tempo. What I mean by that is, is you spend mana and you do not increase your board position with just the enchantment alone. So if you're going first and you have initiative, you can afford to play an enchantment 
and then respond to their first body with your own. But if you're going second, more likely they've played at least one body. And if you play an enchantment, now they've played more bodies and you're that much farther behind. So the big disparity in tempo, because initiative is still important in Mythgard, it does not snowball games as much as other games because of the ability to chump block, but it is still very important. And if you don't have something to like mitigate that tempo loss, you're going to have a bad time. And I think that's exactly what's happening here with Rainbow Zen. It doesn't matter that my enchantment is one cheaper because most of these Rainbow Zen decks are not running enchantments that cost one anyway, right? You're running Serpent Dens. Mm -hmm. So I got to play my Serpent Den like one turn sooner, but I'm still way behind on tempo. And I've got all these enchantments in my hand and no real defensive tools. And that's the problem in my mind. Yeah, and I think enchantment decks, enchantment based decks are actually probably better off without uh, Rainbow Zen for the most part, because that the pursuit it on it really is help. not <laughs> doesn't help. No, and there's some Earth Slide yeah. decks out there that are really fun to play, but I would probably aim more towards just turn of seasons with it and then anything else because uh, it was it was someone mathed it out for me once and they said you need like nine enchantments in your deck, nine or ten enchantments in your deck to. Uh, reliably draw what you want uh, versus the fall season of turn of seasons where you're drawing a card anyways. So I think that that's a, that's a fair statement, but uh, you know, great points all around everybody about this and, and very interesting stats wondering how this is going to get uh, looked at if turn of seasons is going to see some change, if, it, if they're going to sort of hold back on it perhaps and see if maybe they can uh, get some more statistics for a future patch. But uh, nonetheless, my friends, that has been the discussion about the statistics, the patch upcoming. Again, this is being recorded on October 7th uh, and published on, uh, I guess, the Thursday. October 10th is what I'm, I'm guessing the day of release of this that uh, podcast. That's a Thursday, right? That's a Thursday, yeah. yeah. So every, every Thursday is uh, every Thursday morning is yeah. a new episode. So uh, the, the developer said that the patch is going to be released early week. So it might already be out. So we might actually look like fools talking about a lot of this. But still, uh, nonetheless, that is what we're talking about. But we're going to be coming back around the break with the mailbag portion of the podcast where we get to talk about your questions, your comments, and what's on your mind. And uh, But before I do, I want to say that uh, we are going to tell you before the mailbag right after the break how you can win your very own starter pack for Mythgard. we'll give you all the details about how you can enter that contest and win it yourself just by listening to the show and maybe doing some other things either way we're going to come around on the other side of the break with a few words from inked gaming this episode of the boneyard podcast is brought to you by inked gaming if you're looking for a one-stop shop for gaming accessories we suggest heading over to inkedgaming.com Inked Gaming features both custom and store art playmats, dice bags, PC gaming mouse pads, and tons more. Recently, Inked has added a stitched option on playmats and mouse pads to provide even more durability and uniqueness to your game. Use the code TRS12 at checkout and get 12% off your order today. Play your games with your style at InkedGaming.com. All right. 
righty. So like I said, there is a contest for a starter pack that you guys can get your grubby little hands on free of charge, my friends. And the way to do that is in the comment, uh, sorry, the description field of this YouTube video, there's a link. If you click the link, you'll have multiple ways to enter, get various entries into this contest, as simple as just following on Twitter, you know, checking out a video, following here, subscribing there. Don't worry, it costs you nothing for the most part. And yeah, I think it's all free, so don't worry about it, but multiple ways to enter. So go check out that link in the description of this video. But before that, I do want to let you know about 98.3 Media presenting the Moonlight Masquerade. What is the Moonlight Masquerade, you might ask? It is a Mythgard tournament, free of charge to enter. And how do you get involved? Well, we'll also include the link on how you can get signed up for the Moonlight Masquerade in the description field of this YouTube video. It is October 26th with the top eight being broadcast live by some casters you might know on October 27th. So get signed up for that. Prizes involved, lots of cool stuff going on. So make sure that you are ready to go. That is 98.3 presenting the Moonlight Masquerade. All right, boys. Mailbag time. Mailbag time. Oh, boy. This is my... Yeah, this is my favorite part. Now, uh, a lot of it, the questions typically come towards our guest, Charmer, so you got to be prepared for that. Same time, some of the questions and comments and topics, et cetera, brought up are essentially just general info and, and insights from the community. So if we're all ready to go, how about we dive into the mailbag? Charmer, are you ready? I am not ready. I want to address one thing mail-related before we get to the mailbag. Yes, go right ahead. So... If you're listening to this and for whatever reason the patch has not yet dropped, do yourself a favor, go to MythGuard.com and sign up for the mailing list because they have said that when this patch goes out, they are going to be sending everybody on their mailing list a very generous code for in-game things and I don't want anyone to miss out. Now, if you have unfortunately listened to this after the patch has come out, still sign up because they will likely do that stuff in the future, but... That was something they discussed in the Discord, and I did not remember us mentioning it as of yet, and I like helping people out. So do yourself a favor, sign up for the mailing list. You are um, a citizen of the world, you superstar, you. Uh, no, that we talked about this last week, actually, about the, the fact that there's something coming, and we're still waiting, so it's good that you remind people because we do not know when that's going to be. But yes, Charmer... With the words of wisdom there, go to the MythGuard website and scroll down to the bottom of the page. Put your email on that mailing list and uh, get some goodies in the mail. And speaking of goodies in the mail, we've got some goodies, some good ones to talk about here. And uh, we're going to start off with Calrael from via Twitch who asks, there seems to be an influx of players coming from Gwent. Why is that given the games are so different? Now, who wants to take a stab at this one? Oh. I'll start by saying not only is it Gwent, but also a lot of Magic players as well. And I think there's two very different reasons for that. But well, uh, but I, I won't. I don't have to start. <laughs> we'll let our guests start. Okay, if you want to let me start, I think people are coming from Gwent because they like games that are not necessarily RNG or variant heavy. They like being rewarded for skill, but they also miss good old fashioned creature combat because uh, I love Gwent, but there are plenty of times where I've played it and I feel like I'm just playing competitive Sudoku. It's just numbers <laughs> at the end of the day. And Mythgard feels a little bit more tactical. The lane placement matters. Uh, a lot of your combat interactions matter. And so if you are missing that in your life as a Gwent player, it's a great place to go. And on the other side, uh, Mythgard is very akin to magic, 
but without getting mana screwed. So uh, I'm not going to say it never happens. Every now and then I run into situations where I'm like, man, I really wish I had one more gem. But overall, the fact that uh, I'm not just going to get stuck with like a two land hand and then I just know that I've lost. Like there's nothing worse than playing magic and going through your mulligan and just knowing before you even play the game that you don't get to play the game. And that just does not happen in Mythgard and that's very appealing. Yeah, bingo. That's what I was going to say about the magic side, definitely. The land screw fatigue is what brings people over. And it's a very similar system. Uh, for Gwent, though, I, I would say it's also uh, a lot of, uh, if, if it's veteran players, I'd say a lot of veteran players are are also fatigued from uh, the, the way the, the hot fixes and the patches and the constant game-breaking bugs and things like that that go on with Gwent that seem almost on a daily basis. Then they, you know, we Woody mentioned some of them last time on this show, and I think that that's why they've they've come to Mythgard as like a, oh, I, I see other former Gwent people playing Mythgard. I see a lot of people talking about it on Twitter, and so they've come over to check it out and see what it's all about. And it's a nice reminiscence, especially if you went from Hearthstone to Gwent. It kind of brings you back in the middle ground again where it's a little bit of Hearthstone, maybe a little bit of Gwent with the lane recognition. And so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds there. Yeah, I can't add more than that. I mean, you you, just, you nailed it spot on. From from a magic perspective, I think there's an appeal to those who like uh, no restrictions to deck building. Um, you know, the freedoms of how they can combine cards and make some wacky ideas without having the pain of not drawing the land combinations that you desperately need in order to get these things to work and from uh, a Gwent perspective no rng is just such a great appeal and i think that's why a lot of people flock to the game from other games like hearthstone at the beginning because of that um plus minion combat is something that is 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 um it it lacks from gwent i mean i know that there's ways that you can have uh, units interact with one another but the fact that you can kind of just bump heads with them and and, it, and have that kind of damage stick and matter and such um i think that would be it so i think yeah, uh, it's not uh, oh i have more points than you it's i I've, I've beaten up your face <laughs> there's something yeah. beautiful about that <laughs> there really is something visceral uh, visceral about playing a big fat dragon and then getting to destroy things with your dragon instead yeah. of it just sitting there and being like a ball of points. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Shout out to Dracuseth from uh, M20, one of the most badass cards to never get played because it's so damn expensive. All right. Next up, I've got from the one Christo on Discord says, some colors seem to be better off as like secondary tech colors, whereas others seem to be the main. What colors are better suited as support versus what colors are more driven uh, or are better for driving a strategy? Any stabs uh, at this one? It's a hard I mean, question to answer. Yeah, so from, from my, I guess from my own experience, I found that um, there, uh, like there are certain colors that are better to sprinkle or to sort of support an existing strategy. For me, I find that in in blue, uh, in blue red, red is the support uh, to blue a lot of the times. Um, I mean, I could go either ways, but I think that green has always, to me, been the support color. Uh, it's kind of like the best man at the wedding that provides the you know the detained deport provides and all uh, you know like uh, all of those kinds of, of nasty cards of, of the traitorous murmur and all this stuff but doesn't necessarily provide the punch it's kind of the i mean you know it's the guy you have a spotter and you have a sniper so to speak and there's one of them identifying the targets while the other one kind of you know pulls the trigger and i feel like green is definitely 
um, is definitely the best man at the wedding every time. You know, always a bridesmaid, yeah. never a bride. For me, I think that if you're going to make this call, if you're going to make this assessment, what stands out to me is how powerful are the majority of your cards that only cost one gem in their cost? Because if you're just going to be sprinkling something in, you don't want to make as heavy of a commitment to it. And so if you're looking at the six colors here, right? Blue, yellow, and orange all have very powerful cards that require two gems. And so they're typically your core. You know, Thunderclap, Kara uh, Morning Wives, Magnus, things like that in blue. In yellow, it's Miso Libre. Misanthropia is three. Uh, there's just a number of cards in yellow that require two gems. Yahui, for example. In orange, uh, even your regulars, you know, when you get to that three drop, has a two gem requirement. So I think those are typically your core for a number of reasons. And then your splash is the other three. So green, for example, has really powerful kind of splash cards because you get Gallows Boy, great unit for just the one green gem. You've got Detained Deported, as you said. With red, you can splash those ignitions. You can uh, even just splash the uh, Daring Trapezists. And I think that a lot of people forget that that's technically removal because anything with Rush is also removal. In purple, you get uh, a really powerful ninja package if you just include Smoke and Wind. And then you could even include like Racer and Shadow as the purple ignition, if you will. So those colors, I think, end up being splashed more often because their power level at one gem is, I think, higher than the other ones. That's not to say the other ones don't have powerful cards that cost one gem. Uh, the the big mindless automaton in orange that's, you know, a 4-6 four, for four only costs one gem as well. But just overall, I think you get more bang for your buck in you know, red, green, and purple, if you're just including that as a secondary color because of the, the gem count. And I think that's what matters, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good assessment. I, I was going to go more on the route of, I think it depends on what you want to play as well. So like, if you want to go more aggro, you might pick red as your main, and then you might pick orange or purple as your support. Uh, if you want to go more control, you might pick yellow as your main, and then blue as your support or something along those lines. So I think it also depends on... Uh, on what you're trying to go for as well. But purple, if, if I'm going to define one specifically, I always felt purple was the most support of all the factions because I've tried mono purple and it's it's a little messy. I mean, it can be done, but it just seems a little a little bit messy. But I've always thought that purple was a very nice support uh, support color. All right, this one comes from Mr. Home on Reddit. How soon is too soon for a new expansion? Like right now. <laughs> yeah, well, then, you know, now, now is where I'm going to go with this yeah. one. I would say that too soon is probably this year. Yeah. I think that January Let's get out of beta. <laughs> is going to. Well, yeah, but we don't know when that is. Right. And I'm, right. I'm just going from if this is the final product, let's say the patch comes out tomorrow and it's a, it's a it's a beautiful symphony of balance and it is so harmonious and everything is perfectly tuned to where we want it to be. How much longer after that does the game get stale with with the steady growth that it is now? I think the game has a lot of legs to continue to evolve and find its uh, find itself uh, all through October, November, and December. And I think by January there might be a little bit of fatigue and a little bit of want for for some content. Um, but I think that can kind of be shored up by a, a tournament scene or some type of competitive scene but how soon is too soon i think that anything in 2019 is way too soon and i think that um 
if we can see new content by March, uh, I think that's okay. Uh, because I think there's still a lot to come in before that, but that's probably when it's going to pro, uh, it might get to a point where, where there's going to be some serious stagnation and it might turn some people off. All right. I'm going to bore you with a numbers answer, but for me, the, the answer is actually uh, dependent on what Rhino's target player base would be before they want to start releasing more content because you don't want to release content if your your target before the first expansion hasn't had at least some time to accrue a, a moderate size collection. The last thing you want to do is have somebody start playing your game, be really into it, but then hear, hey, I, I need to catch up with what's already in existence and now there's going to be this big expansion coming as well. So it, that's that's tough for me to make the call because I don't know what Rhino's like goals would be, but you want in my mind, to allow your free-to-play players to amass, I don't know, maybe 50% uh, of a collection before you then pull the switch and say, hey, this is coming. Or if you're going to announce an expansion, like maybe that ties people over. If you say, hey, you know, in a month, we're going to launch this. And so that gives people time to catch up. But you don't want to do it until you've seen the growth that you would expect. There's also the other side of things, which is Rhino is awesome. They've got great members on that team, but they are a bit smaller than some of these big AAA companies. And so we know that there are things that need to be updated, like the UI, some of the other uh, user experience items. And I don't want them delaying that just for the sake of also pushing out the expansion, because we know that that's been the number one feedback on Reddit, on social media, et cetera. People say, hey, I really like Mythgard, but like the UI feels old or clunky and if they address that first, then I think that will help with new player experience and player retention, which are both very important. And then you can say, okay, here's the the shiny new stuff. Um, I think that uh, the game needs, oh, kind of what Charmus said, but I, th- I think the game needs much more of a player base first. I know that the veterans who've been around for since like closed alpha will probably feel fatigued, but you have to remember that this game is getting new players every day. And if you bombard those new players with, here's an expansion that you should pay for and everyone already has it and you're going to be outmatched already. Like that's a lot to ask for new people coming in. And so I think any CCG when they're coming into the space brand new, I mean, we just came into beta not that long ago or open beta rather, like let's get out of open beta. Then let's let the game, you know, get a bigger player base after that. And then we can talk about introducing new cards and, and, and everything because you don't want, your new players to feel like they'll never catch up. That's when that's when your I think your player base levels out. Uh, so that that's a that's a really tough timing to try to figure out. But I think that's very important. All right. So not tomorrow is the answer. Not tomorrow. Uh, it, tomorrow is tomorrow is uh, well. Tomorrow is definitely too soon. But it, yeah, it'll come. It's 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 in the books. We've already we spoke to Leo in episode one, who already gave us sort of a roadmap as to at least projected amounts of cards for expansion and how often they want them to come out. So it's in the books. So uh, how soon is too soon? Well, there, there's your answer. All right. From the Manted Man on Reddit, uh, communities are an integral part to the success of a developing game. What is one thing the community should strive to do to help grow the Mythgard community? This is a, there's a lot to diet to sort of to jump into because how what what should the community do to sort of thrive to grow itself well i mean a lot of it is just 
don't hate on each other. I guess that's always the best, but yeah. being inviting and helpful to new players has always been one way for a, a budding community to continue to grow. And, um, depends what you mean by like that particular community because some people just think it's oh it's only discord or it's only reddit or it's only you know uh twitch or whatnot but frankly it's everything together so i think that the best way that you can you can support that community growth is to support the players within it and just be as helpful as possible with you know be it to um to comment on uh on on questions that are asked in either reddit or discord or or on streams to be a positive like a be a contributing citizen man i don't know how else to prop like well, to properly unpack this but yeah. uh, Sh- you know. sharing content as well right you know supporting the people who are making like most of the time people are making content videos deck guides for free Mythgard hub was created for free you know so like supporting those things and giving constructive criticism and feedback rather than just bashing something is helpful and then sharing those things to other people. And if you're introducing someone to the game, say, hey, here's all these great resources that you can learn how to play and you can use this and use that. Like being very open and sharing is probably the best way to help grow a community. Because as, as, you, as, you, as you help grow the content, you know, you're helping to grow everything as a whole. So just supporting all of that. Yeah, Charmer, I, I mean, I, I was just going to say, you got to be active and you've got to tell your friends I mean, I know it sounds silly, but like it's it's the good old fashioned like tell your friends, scream it from the rooftop. Um, You know, there's there's a reason that I've been saying since basically like February when I got into the alpha pretty heavy, like this is a game you should play. Right. And yeah, I uh, I made that YouTube video. It was uh, uh, relatively successful for me. Like I'm a tiny creator. Uh, I, I know that seems weird, but like in the big scheme of things right like right now i have one of the most viewed miscard videos like just period on youtube but it's it's only because like nobody else has uh, done anything right mogwai or Knox or somebody could literally make one video tomorrow and it would dethrone me but like that's good right i i want that and i would share their content as well because at the end of the day i just want other people to find out how awesome miscard is and so I think that part of that also, you guys said share, I think part of it's also a bit of a, an ego check because for those of us who've been in the alpha, it might feel like to us that this is our baby and you you might get some sort of sense of entitlement, right? You might have this feeling that you might be this big fish in a small pond, but the reality is I don't want that to be the case. I want this to be an ocean. And if I become a minnow, I don't care. The game is awesome. Rhino deserves it for all the work they've put into it. Everybody else who's in the community and they've put in work uh, between Mythgard Hub and the people running tournaments and have been running tournaments since Alpha, you know, they're they're putting in their own time and effort for free just because they love the game. So the, the more people that we can get to have those positive experiences, fall in love with this game the way that we have, I, I think is ultimately just it's good for everybody. Right. It's, there's that old uh, proverb, the the rising tide lifts all boats. So let's let's flood this thing all right that's a great answer there you go manted man that is what you have to do just scream it from the rooftops and stop your feet light a match do all that kinds of stuff all right this one's from laser Zition on reddit what caster have you worked with charmer that has the best hair uh that that is pretty easy actually for me you can't say yourself me. 
No, I snuck it in there beforehand. So right, I fine. Uh, I'm going to go with swim. It might be an unpopular <laughs> opinion, but when you, when you meet swim in person, as much as you see him on stream, uh, touch his hair, when you meet him in person and you see at the casting desk, he's got this like little pharmacy of pills. And then he's also got like, literally I'm not making this up. So uh, those plastic containers that you would keep like magic cards in, right? He had one of those, but in it instead was conditioner. And he would like work it into his hair, like on breaks at the casting desk. And you just kind of grow to appreciate his his lion's mane, if you will, in person. Yeah, there's not a glove uh, thick enough for me to touch his hair. I'm sorry. I've met him twice before. He's definitely an eccentric soul. Um there's only so many people who can drink milk out of a martini glass and not look creepy. And I'm, we're still finding that per looking for that person, but um, either way, yes, that, that I guess that, that that's one, he does have his own uh, set of locks that are, I guess, iconic and uh, definitely associated to his look. And as he's a, he's certainly a special, special soul. All right. Uh, next up and last up from the uh, mailbox is uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly way up. Naducks. I, I, I don't know either way. It's from Reddit. And the question is, how do I look for cards that link well together? I guess looking for what's the best way to sort of look for synergies. Um, you know, th this person mentioned that they were new to the game and they were just curious about best ways to sort of establish good synergistic decks. Type a keyword. That's what I did. Yeah. When I first started. So so the easy answer is uh, type a keyword, type a minion type, right? Look for things that all have the same word on them. So you can build a, a spirit deck, a Valkyrie deck. You can go mono red and play every card with rush in it, right? Go with that keyword, things like that. Uh, you can build a, a yellow control deck based around blight. That's that's like the uh, the 101 beginner's tip. Now, the the next tip is to think about what a card does well, and then how you can make it do that even better. So for example, um, I know a lot of new players do not like to run the uh, power impel. And I think that that is pretty normal, right? You're not used to lane movement being uh, that important and you want things like damage from smite or infuse, or if you're playing control, you're thinking, okay, well maybe mend is the way to go. But if you look at something like purple, who has the ninjas, um, the ninjas, what they do well is they help you control the board and they need to either be hitting opposing creatures like uh, the ninja that does not take retaliatory damage. That's how you use him to control the board. Or they need to be hitting an open lane in the case of uh, Shinobi of Wind because then you can deal two damage to anything on the board. Impel is an enabler for that, right? So you can use Impel to make sure that those ninjas are either hitting other creatures and killing them or hitting an open lane and then allowing you to spread the damage wherever you want. Um, taking that a step further, depending on the color combinations you're running, you can say, okay, well, maybe I also want to include Jaunt or Fosgrim, or maybe I want to include uh, a Mistwalker Gate if I'm running Purple Red, for example. So you think about what certain minions or just cards in general do well, and then you try to figure out ways to make them do that even better. And that's another way that you can look for synergy. There you go. There you have it way up. So I hope that uh, some of this advice can help you in your deck building process and on your journey getting into Mythgard. And that wraps up the mailbag for this week. If you have any 
anything that you want us to talk about or touch upon, you can always uh, send a tweet to myself at WatchFlake or to Marktheus at Marktheus. You can message us on the Discord. You can catch us in the Mythgard Discord uh, server there and just shoot us a DM. Or you can comment here in this video on YouTube and ask us some questions. Uh, and uh, we'll be happy to touch upon it in a future episode of The Boneyard. But that wraps up this week's episode, episode six, featuring our good and handsome charmer. If you want more charmer, there's always the extra sauce portion of the show that is exclusive on TeamRankStar.com. We're going to get nitty-gritty with uh, Charmer, little uncensored talk about TwitchCon that he recently got to. Plus, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about his casting stories and some of the other personalities he's met. But for those uh, you know paying regular price for the fare, we're just going to have to uh, jump off the bus right now. So... My man, Charmer, as always, a wonderful experience having you on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show. And for those who want to catch more of your content or streams or whatnot, how can they go about doing so? On Twitch and on YouTube, I am just Charmer, but there is a three for an E because I'm one of those awesome, edgy internet folks. So it's Charm3R. On Twitter, if you want to hear me yell into the wind, for no apparent reason i'm that charmer i'm also that charmer on instagram as well great stuff all right any parting shots before we uh kick it up a notch and go to the extra sauce uh you know just the typical thanks for having me i had a lot of fun i always enjoy talking about the things that i love and i absolutely love Mythgard, so this is a good time good stuff all right mark out of how out of five hot pockets how many has this uh, what are we rating this show today well well you can make four and a half in nine and a half minutes but we're gonna bump it up to uh five out of five hot pockets perfect awesome all right mark shall we uh give some dap to our sponsors before we go to extra sauce absolutely we're gonna thank our sponsors 90.3 media inked gaming team rank star and op seat and all you beautiful viewers thank you once again for making the boneyard possible that's correct. And don't forget to sign up for 98.3 presenting Moonlight Masquerade. And uh, also, if you want that free starter pack, you can join the contest in the description field of the YouTube video. My name is Flake. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Boneyard. And if it wasn't for you guys, we'd be talking to ourselves. So thank you so much, you sexy viewers. We'll see you next time.